turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, where I am just so sorry to tell you that we've come to the end of the chapter. Approved to God only by faith. This is uh, our last message in Hebrews before we turn back to Luke chapter 17, where we're going to be looking at the second coming of Christ. Do we have any like, Star Trek fans here? Raise your hand if you're a Star Trek fan. Come on. Come on. Give me the Vulcan. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're all, we all know about Star Trek. It has one of the, the most famous monologue of any series that has ever run. It's run, I don't know how many different brands of series there are, but there's a lot of spin-offs. But, you know, we're all familiar with James T. Kirk or, or Jean-Luc Picard, Space. The final frontier. And, uh, and you know, we just know that. I mean, you know, we could all probably all pen it out from memory because we've heard it so many times. Well, I was just thinking as I was, you know, trying to sum up the chapter that Hebrews 11 should have its own monologue. A monologue that maybe we should read before every sermon or Bible study on this text. Faith in God, in Christ, in the word of God, the final frontier. These are the lives of those who gained approval by faith, whose lifelong mission was to explore strange new promises, to seek out new levels of trusting God and obeying his word, and to boldly go in faith where no man has gone before. I mean, that's what we've seen, right? I mean, these people in this chapter have done incredible things by faith. They've, they've gone in faith where no one has ever gone before. And this is just a sampling of what we read in the Bible. There's a lot more. And if we go outside the Bible and we look at church history, we see these explorers of faith trusting God and going out into the world into all sorts of situations and trusting in God. And we've seen some of these adventures as we've looked at the lives of different people. And and the author of Hebrews is so concerned about all of us living by faith. God inspired this book to teach all of us about the importance of faith that he, he really spends a great deal of time on it. It starts in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, if you look there, where he says, draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith. This is the first little exhortation. Then in Hebrews 10, 38, we read, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no no pleasure in him. That is such a sobering verse. To think that God, if you're not living by faith, has no pleasure in your walk. You have to have faith in him. And we have learned from chapter 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We've learned that faith gains approval with God, that faith leads us to believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, that without faith, verse 6 says, it is impossible to please him. We saw that Abel worshipped by faith, Enoch walked by faith, Noah persevered in obedience by faith, Abraham left his country, he left all, conceived a son by faith, and then offered that son up as a sacrifice by faith. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all believed in the promises to Abraham by faith and passed the blessing down to their sons. Joshua and the people of Israel conquered Jericho by faith, and Rahab preserved her life and her family's life by faith. 
After that, the author of Hebrews just picks up speed. He just begins kind of a rapid fire list of names. And then he just starts doing some broad sweeping comments about people who live by faith. And all of this brings us to our text. And so what I want to do is I want to read verses 32 through 40, even though we'll only be looking at the last two verses, just to kind of give us a flow because he's gaining speed. And this is uh, kind of getting to the place where he's going to bring it all together in the two verses that we're going to study this morning. He says in verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these having gained a through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Well, this morning I want to look at these last two verses and show you three grand concepts of, of faith and how to live a life that is approved before God. The first is this. Those of faith gain approval with God. This is clear earlier on in the chapter also. He says pretty much the same thing. And the question we need to ask ourselves, am I a person of faith? Do I live by faith when I look back last week, last month, the last six months? Could I say, you know what? I'm constantly trusting God. I'm constantly relying upon his word. I'm thinking about his promises. I'm trying to make um, my hope what he has said and my hope Christ. You know, there are some who, who just openly don't want to believe in God. They hate God and they'll tell you or they say they don't believe in him and, and they have faith in themselves or in science or in other things. And then there are other people who, who have faith in kind of faith, but it's not faith in anything. It's faith in nothing. It's just a concept of faith. I am a person of faith in what? That's it. There's nothing there. And then there's the people who are, yes, I believe in Jesus and I believe in God. But the demons believe in Jesus and God. And, and they just have an intellectual assent to, to the existence of Jesus and God. But that's pretty much all. Then there's others who are more knowledgeable and might believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. And they may know the creeds and, and they may know quite a bit of the Bible. And they may say, I believe these things. But again, it's still just an intellectual thing. And while those things are important... They're not sufficient to save you. And then there's finally those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Those people and those people alone are the people that are being addressed in this chapter. We mentioned at the beginning, we mentioned in the middle, and I'm mentioning it again. If you don't know Christ, you can't please God. You can never please God. 
Now that may seem strange to you if you haven't really studied the scripture. You mean I can't like, you know, like give to charity? Sure you can. It just doesn't please God. You mean I can't like help an old lady across the street and be nice? It's like, sure you can. And I hope you do, but it doesn't please God. You mean it doesn't matter whether I, I like sin or don't sin? No, no, you're missing it. If you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, you only sin. It's not like you sometimes do bad and you sometimes do good. You're always doing bad because you're always rejecting God's love gift to you. And you won't accept it. When I was in the ninth grade, I took a metal shop. I went poor. Those shop classes were so great and they have fallen the wayside. But metal shop was great. Big power lays and welders and, you know, forges and things to guy stuff. And we had this shop teacher who made these rules at the beginning of class. He said, now this is the rule. When you're doing anything with metal, any sort of hot thing with metal, and you're wearing your, your welding gloves, he says, you weld on that piece of metal and you do whatever. He says, I want you to take that piece of metal, grab it with the tongs, dip it in the water and cool it off. Set it down. Put the tongs down. Take the glove off your right hand. Put it over your left shoulder. Grab the piece of metal with your right hand and come and show it to me. But he says, if you aren't holding that piece of metal in your right hand with your glove off. You are invisible to me. And we thought, man, what a legalist, you know? I mean, what's what's all these procedures? Well, the procedure was he had a lot of people hand him a piece of hot metal. They're, well, they're holding their welding gloves. Hey, check this out, teacher. Ah! You know? So finally... Anybody with a glove on became invisible to him. And, and sure enough, one day I was welding on a piece of thing. I chipped off the flux and I was pretty proud of my weld. And I, I did cool it off. And, and then I just grabbed it with my glove, you know. I mean, it was still had water on it. And I, I came up there to show it to the teacher. And he's just kind of looking past me. And I'm trying to get in line. He's like, no eye contact. It's like, you know, it's like, what's the deal? I'm trying to, uh, excuse me, excuse me. He's helping other students. I'm thinking, man, what is the deal? I'm finding like, my gloves on. So uh, I take it off. I throw it over my shoulder. I grab it with my right hand. I was like, Jack, can I help you? <laughs> and you know, that is exactly how it is with faith. If you aren't living by faith, man, you are invisible. You can't please God. He doesn't see anything you do as right before him. You can never be approved if you are not living by faith. You have to go by his rule book and his rule book says live by faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 8 that unbelievers cannot please God. It says it is impossible for them to do so. In Galatians chapter one, verse 10, Paul speaks of uh, seeking the favor of and pleasing God. In Colossians 1.10, he says we need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in every respect. In first Thessalonians chapter two, verse four, Paul says he spoke to please God, not men. We even saw this in Hebrews eleven six, where it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. The whole goal of life should be to give God glory, to please him in every respect. But if you don't have faith, nothing works. 
No church attendance, no giving, no Sunday school, no gospel witnessing, nothing, nothing, nothing works to his glory that comes from you if it's not by faith. You've got the glove on and he doesn't want anything to do with it. Now I want to be clear to you, when the Bible speaks of pleasing God, it is never in reference to unbelievers trying to make God like them so he will save them. Ever. When it talks about pleasing God, it's talking about believers who have the ability to please God because they are saved. They do have the Holy Spirit. They do have all sufficient grace so that they can please God. When the Bible speaks of pleasing God, it speaks to believers only who by the grace God supplies are able to do his will. Once saved, the Christian should grow in their love to Christ and, and seek to please Christ, should want to please Christ because, man, he saved me. You know, I was headed for hell and he rescued me. I want to honor him. I want to serve him. I want to be his man, his woman or whatever. Saving faith is, is you know, like putting that first tank of gasoline into the car. You know, you've got the new car, but listen, you don't have any gas. You're not going anywhere. You put the gas in there, you can start it up, then that's the beginning. And then all the rest of that car's life, you keep putting gas and gas. And why? To keep it going. And that's how it is. We need to not only be saved by faith, but we must continue by that sanctifying faith, that faith that we keep on trusting God. It's not like, okay, God, I had faith in you and you saved me. Now I'm going to trust myself. No, no. Hebrews 11 is talking about the sanctifying faith that must continue on in the life of every believer. And in our text, in verse 39, he says, and all these, and he's speaking of all those that we've just talked about in the chapter, all these believers gained approval through their faith. Now, just think about all these people. And this is what's encouraging about it. I mean, when you look in this text, it's pretty apparent that there's a lot of imperfect sinners in that passage. I mean, you look at some of them and go, what are they doing there? Um, and you know, that should encourage all of us, shouldn't it? That God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for faith. Once you have faith in Christ, Christ takes care of your sin. He takes care of your imperfection. He died for that. And then we must live our lives trusting in him. And when we blow it, faith is the answer. Faith is the answer, not trusting in ourselves. The word translated gained approval in verse 39 could be translated to bear a good witness, to obtain an honorable testimony, to be well spoken of. It really means that God puts his stamp of approval on your life. You know, often we buy things in in uh, the store. Maybe you buy some clothing or something, and uh, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're at work, and uh, you know, it's the end of the day, and uh, somebody comes up to you and goes, uh, "You got a little sticker on the back of your sleeve," and you look, and it says, "Inspected by number seven. <laughs> and you realize, I wonder how many people saw that and didn't say anything. You go to the store and you have uh, some USDA stamped approved meat or, you know, you, you buy something and it's certified organic. And all these things have their certain rules, their certain restrictions, their certain procedures that must be followed in order to get the stamp of approval. Well, if you're going to get God's approval of anything in your life, it must be done in faith. And if it's not done in faith, you don't get his approval. 
So when God looks over your life last week, last month, last year, does he give his stamp of approval because he says that person is a person who lives by faith? Now, if you look at your life and go, you know what? I don't live by faith. I mean, I understand who Jesus is and I understand what he did. And, you know, I've got a Bible in my lap, but I don't live by faith. Well, friend, then you may be in danger of hell. Because the righteous live by faith. They live by faith. You need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and start living by faith. We've already learned that saving faith comes from God himself. I mean, that's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, right? By grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, which that phrase in the Greek means not of yourself. He said, well, isn't that referred to salvation? Yeah. Isn't that referred to grace? Yeah. Isn't that referred to faith? Yeah. You, you mean to tell me that, that, you know, I didn't like, you know, conjure up my own faith and, and believe in God on my own. And then when God saw I was believing him, woke up and said, whoa, he's believing in me. I guess I'll save him. That's exactly right. In Philippians chapter one, verse 20, 29 Paul says to the Philippians, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name's sake. It's been granted you, if you are truly saved, to believe in Christ. Think about that. That offends people. I've talked to people who have been pretty eked about that. No, I just want you to know, I put my faith in Jesus. You can't tell me I didn't believe. Well, I'm not saying you didn't believe. But if you think you came to Christ on your own and believed in Christ apart from his grace and his doing, that is nonsense. Listen, if it was up to us, we would just run and jump into the pit of hell. I'm serious. We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. That's us. Listen to how Paul describes every single believer, uh, unbeliever as he's sharing the gospel in the beginning of Romans. He's already talked about how the moral person is, is not going to heaven and is a sinner and the Jew is a sinner and the Gentiles a sinner. And then he summarizes giving us doubly inspired words. You say, well, how is that? This is how. He takes a whole bunch of inspired quotes from the Old Testament and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he quotes them. That's kind of double inspired, wouldn't you say? And this is what he says, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. Now just listen to this, and this is the profile of every person before coming to Christ. For it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with the with the, their tongues. They keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There we are. That's us. That's us. Pretty sorry state. None seeking after God. Not even one. I know what you're thinking, but I saw him. Let me give you another text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
Paul is going to, he's just going to say some of the great things about the gospel and how God saved the Ephesian believers. But he says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now just stop there. You know what dead is? It means unable to respond. Go down to the morgue sometime and try this experiment. Have them, you know, roll somebody out on a cold steel slab and say, hey, wiggle your toe. Hey, sit up, shake my hand, blink your eye, say something, do something. They can't do anything. Why? Because they're dead. Dead people can't respond. Just like spiritually dead people can't respond spiritually. They can't do it. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. You know, this is how we are spiritually. Ooh, I mean, you know, we're just like, you know, the zombies, you know, you see in the B grade horror flicks or whatever, you know, yeah, that's it. We're, we're nothing. We're, we can't respond to God. We're just, we're zombies. And we can't, we can't respond spiritually because we are spiritually dead. And just to make sure that the Ephesians don't feel beat up on like, yeah, you guys are dead and you're walking court. Paul then adds, oh, and we too all lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's the profile, again, of every unbeliever. Walking dead people, spiritually speaking. And that is the inspired profile of every single person before they come to Christ. Now you're sitting there, yeah, but I did believe. But the question is, why did you believe? If there are none who seek after God, why were you an exception? Well, he goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you have been saved. There it is. God is the one who resurrects us to newness of life through the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word. Well, yes, one might argue, but I did believe. I specifically remember it. I chose, I placed my faith in Christ, and I remember it distinctly this day. I was overcome by my own sinfulness. I understood the gospel, and I believed. And you know what? You did because of God, because of his grace. God was working behind the scenes to open your heart, to draw you to Christ, to give you understanding so that, yes, you could believe. But he gets all the glory. Don't try and even add a thread, a thread of your works to your salvation. You do that, you're denying that Christ and Christ alone can save. Think about it. You remember the story of the lame man, Luke 7, or Luke 5, the lame man. We, we, we saw that story. You remember the, the guy, he couldn't walk, so his friends ca- carried him on a stretcher. They came to the crowd. The crowds were mobbed around this house, and Jesus must have been like standing in the, kind of an open house or something, and he was teaching. And so many people were there, they couldn't get through, so they went around. They went up on the roof. Remember, they hoisted him up there. They tore off the roof, and they lowered this guy down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And then you remember what he says right after that? He says this, I say to you, get up, take up your stretcher and go home. And the man did. 
Now, if you're a thinking person, you're thinking, how could he do that? I thought he was paralyzed. How could he get up if he was unable to get up? The same way you're able to believe when you can't. The same reason you come to Christ when you won't. Because when God gives the command, he also gives the grace to make the command happen. So that in the end, the man took up his pallet, got up and went home. Now, I don't want to labor on this point, but I want to make it clear. If you have come to Christ... It's because of Christ and Christ alone. It's because of his grace and his grace alone. And you can't be taking credit for what Jesus did. I mean, you could imagine how dishonoring it would be if this man were to go home, this lame man, and said, you know what, wife, I'm home. And I saw Jesus and I went and I found him. And after I found him, I got my sins forgiven. And then I healed myself and here I am. It's like, what? You couldn't even walk. You had to be carried to Jesus. Your friends had to find Jesus. They had to lower you down. Jesus forgave you without you even asking. He gave you the command, but he gave you the grace to obey the command. And you have obeyed the command because of what he did. And he healed you. But if we come to God and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, listen. I would doubt that you're saved. If you think that apart from God's grace, you can add even just a speck of your own human effort to your salvation, you have, in the words of Paul, fallen from grace. Because Christ will not be co-savior of yourself. It must be Christ and Christ alone. And if you try to add a little bit of you in there, then really you're telling Jesus, I don't believe your death, your burial, your resurrection, your grace is sufficient for me. I mean, it's mostly sufficient, maybe 99%. But you know what? I do need to help a little. And if that's you, then you're not trusting in Christ alone. Then you don't know Christ. It must be Christ and Christ alone. Now, let's say you do know Christ. You have repented of your sins and you've you've seen your life change and there's been seasons of real spiritual growth and and you do love the Lord. But when you look at your life, you just realize, man, I am so distracted by the world. I am so caught up in things. I'm so messed up. I just I'm just not living by faith like I should. And I don't I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I you know, I'm convicted now. You've got me convicted, but what do I need to do? Well, God has given you a conscience, right? That conscience is like one of those shock collars I wish were around the neck of the dogs around my house. <laughs> and whenever the dog barks, zzz, the zap comes. They hear a little chirp and then it's quiet. They were great. And you know what? God has given all of us a conscience so that when we sin, when we stop walking in faith, it zaps us. And you know how the batteries get charged up? The word. 
When we study the word of God, when we listen to sermons, when we go to small group and talk about the Bible, when we go to our Bible study or Sunday school class, when we listen to good sermons or when we read books or sing songs saturated with the Bible, when we get God's truth dwelling in us richly, as Colossians says in Colossians 3.16, when it's just saturating us, then we're keeping our batteries charged. Our shock collar is at peak efficiency. And believe me, when you go astray, it's like, oh, that's wrong. But you know what? You quit reading the Bible. It'll shock you a good time, a couple of good times. And then what happens? The batteries start wearing down and you don't feel it anymore. And pretty soon you can just sin and sin and it doesn't bother you anymore because the batteries are dead and you're not charging them up. So listen. You want to live by faith? You get into the word because it's the word of God that produces faith in us. Secondly, the second grand concept of faith. Not only do we need to remember that we are approved only by faith, but those who are of faith must trust God's promises. Look again at verse 39. We read all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Stop there. This tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that they knew the promises. They didn't receive the promises, but they knew about them and they had faith in them. And this is what we see in the passage. If you look back at chapter 10 again, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Look down at verse 36 of chapter 10 for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Look at Hebrews eleven nine. By faith he, that is Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Look at verse 11 of chapter 11. By faith even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promise verse 13 all these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them from and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth look at verse 17 by faith abraham when he was tested offer up isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son at verse 33 who by faith conquered kingdoms performed act of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions I mean, it's all the way through. You've got to have the promises. Promises are huge to God. They're important. You know, some, every once in a while we get one of those really nasty storms. Uh, you know, when I was uh, a commercial fisherman in Hawaii and we would, we would go out in the wintertime on the Hawaiian chain, we'd go out in the wintertime and we'd go out during the storms. You think, why would anybody do that? Because the, the, the prices in the fish market would always spike up right after, as soon as, because all the little boats wouldn't go out. So we would, you know, we were not a huge boat, but we were big enough to go out. So we'd go out in these nasty winter storms. And you know what? You know, if you've ever been in a harbor during the storm, it's very interesting. There's huge howling winds and, and just, you know, the, all the boats there are just, you know, waving and, the harbor's kind of a little refuge, you know. There's big jetties and big boulders and rocks uh, surrounded by big concrete piers with all these boats lashed to them. And you know what the boats are lashed to? The big cleats, big metal cleats that are bolted to these concrete docks. And as long as the bow line and the stern line are all 
hooked to these cleats, then the boats are there faithful and they may wiggle a little bit during the wilding winds, but they're safe. But I'm telling you, if you were to go in there and cut all those bow lines off, all those stern lines off, you know what would happen? All those boats would be set adrift and they'd all crash and sink upon the rocks. Well, the promises of God are the cleats that faith wraps onto. The promises of God are those things that you know about that you go, you know what? I see the storm, but I'm holding on to this promise. I'm wrapping my faith around this promise. I'm not going to be set adrift and I'm not going to crash upon the rocks of anxiety and worry and fretting and doubting because I know what the word of God says. The promises of God are what we cling to in our life. Faith is faith in the promises of God. It's just not faith for faith's sake. It's faith in the promises of God. You know, you have somebody come to you and, uh, you know, a pastor has somebody come and says, yeah, pastor, I need to talk to you. I'm just really, I'm really nervous. I'm anxious. I'm worrying, you know, the, uh, my job, they're downsizing. I may lose it. The economy's bad. I, I think that might even replace my whole field of, you know, with machines and, and I've got a wife and I've got children to feed and a mortgage to pay. And, and then one of the pastors says, so tell me, um, what, what promises of God have you been uh, meditating on? And it's amazing how you'll get this, what? Dude! I mean, that's what Jesus would say. Dude, you're set adrift! Hey, you're going to crash upon the rocks! You may have already crashed upon the rocks! And you've got to latch onto the promises! The promises are what keep you steadfast from being set adrift, from crashing and despair and sin. Listen, if you don't have the promises of God, if you're not clinging to those, you're going to be, you're in trouble. You remember what happened to Christian and Hopeful and Pilgrim's Progress when they wandered off the straight and narrow to bypass meadow, which at first seemed pretty good. And soon they found themselves in this cold, dark storm and it's raining and giant despair captures them and pitches them into his dungeon and beats them every day mercilessly. And there they are in the doubting castle. Despair has them. He's beating them every day. He's giving them poison to take so they can kill themselves and knives, giving them implements of suicide. And there they are. And day after day, they've been there a long time in this This despair. And you remember how they got out? One of them finally realizes, hey, we've got the scroll of promise. And they look at it, and there in the wax seal of that scroll is a key that can open any key, any lock in Doubting Castle. And they try it in the door, and it opens up. And with promise in hand, they flee from the castle. And just as they're leaving, giant despair realizes he's going to leave some of his, lose some of his captives. He goes tearing after him and all these dark clouds that are above his castle begin to part and the light comes through, which represents the truth. And it strikes him and knocks him down. He has to crawl back to his dark hole. And the whole point there is they could have gotten out any time they wanted. They had all they needed in the scroll of promise to get out of their funk. But they didn't go there. And that's why they stayed there. 
And that's why despair and that's why anxiety and that's why worry and that's why fretting beat them mercilessly day after day. And it'll do the same to you if you don't have God's promises in your mind and in your heart. The Apostle Paul said in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When you read the word of Christ, not only does it save you, it just, it continues to strengthen your faith because you just go, man, I forgot that. I mean, haven't you been reading your Bible and you're just reading? I mean, it happens to me almost every day. Oh, I forgot that. Oh, that's right. Oh, I've preached on that before. Yeah, I forgot that. I mean, you know, I forget too. And more is the older I get. Listen, Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let, let me just remind you of what he says about the promises of God. He says, says this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us believers everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He says, for by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Oh, they're precious. And listen, if you're in a trial, they become more precious. And why does he give us his precious and magnificent promise? He says, so that by them, that is by having faith in them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped that corruption that is in the world by lust. You want to know how to avoid the rocks of sin and despair? Cling to the promises. They will help you escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so do yourself a favor and let God's word dwell in you richly. Man, get into those good books. Listen to those good sermons. Listen to quality music. Go to Bible study. Go to Sunday school. Come to church. Get, get saturated, you know, leaking, you know, like Spurgeon said. So if somebody pricked you, the blood would be bibline. You know, you doctor opened you up to do surgery. He goes, man, there's verses everywhere in here. You know, the whole innards are just saturated with psalms and proverbs and spiritual songs. I mean, what is the deal? That's what you want. Now, some of you may be saying, but you know, Pastor Jack, I hear what you're saying. And all this sounds quite noble. And I I imagine that um, it's all, you know, in the Bible, I see that it's there. But listen, I've trusted the promises of God before and he didn't pull through for me. I waited a whole week one time and it it didn't happen. (laughs) Look at the end of verse 39. He says, all the believers mentioned the text did not receive what was promised. You say, well, how could they continue in faith? Because God always fulfills his promises. He doesn't always do it according to our timetable, right? He does it according to his timetable. You know, there's that person in your life and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And and finally, when you say, you know what, it's been 25 years. They're not going to come to Christ. And you give up and then they get a call. I came to Christ. And you think, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I should have carried on another week. (laughs) Yes. 
They received some of the promises, but they didn't see, receive the grand promises. In verse 13, yes, they obtained promises, but there was grand promises they were waiting for. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for that once for all sacrifice who would put an end to the sacrificial system, that perfect sacrifice that could actually save a person, not just a picture of the ultimate sacrifice, but the ultimate sacrifice itself. That's what they were waiting for. They knew the Messiah was coming, but they never saw him. However, we know that the Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ and that he has come and that he was crucified for our sins and buried and rose again on the third day. This is what Jesus is talking about when he talks to the disciples in Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, for he says, truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see see it and desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He says, man, all those people in the Old Testament, they would have died to be walking around with the Messiah, seeing him do miracles. Oh, man, they would have just been freaking out and you guys can't even pay attention. Keep wanting to go back to fishing. What's wrong with you? They believed. They believed in the promises of God and they all died having never received these grand promises of the Messiah's coming and his atoning death. A.W. Pink points out that here lies the essential difference between Old Testament and New Testament believers saying, quote, the one looked forward to a savior that was to come. The other looks back to a savior who has come. And see, on our side, we get to look back because we're New Testament believers. We get to look back to see what Jesus already did. You see, on this side of the cross, we have the blessings of knowing who the Messiah is, what he did, what he taught, what he said. It's so great. And the apostles wrote all these letters and books for us so we can learn more about Jesus. And this teaches us that God's promises are always worth trusting. And even though you may die having never received them, you will receive them. If a promise is for you, you're going to receive it. You may have to wait 20 years or 30 years or 50 years and you may have to wait 100 years and then die and then wait another 1,000 years in heaven. You're going to receive the promises. God cannot lie. God always fulfills his word. He cannot break his word. And this is what's so great. I mean, you know, I can make you a promise, but listen, I mean, you know, that's pretty iffy. I forget, you know, I've told people, hey, I'll meet you for lunch and, you know, and just totally blown them off. I, I do things like that. I'm untrustworthy, but God has a perfect record. God always shows up. God always follows through. God never fails. He never breaks his word. He can't do it. It would ungod him. And that is why we can have hope in the promises of God. This week I talked to Marv Biddick, which a lot of you know. He's one of the old senior saints who was here for many, many years. And then uh, his commute from Santa Clarita just got a little bit too much. And so he started going to Placerita Baptist. But he calls me up every once in a while just to see how I'm doing and tell me he still misses Calvary. He wants all of you to know. He says, hi. And What's neat is, is we were talking on the phone and, and I was just thinking, you know, we didn't talk about his aches and pains and ectomies and pills and procedures, which, you know, when you get into your eighties, those become more prevalent. But you know, what we talked about heaven and Marv said, you know, I just am really amazed when people come up to me and say things like, you know, I don't know about heaven because, you know, it seems like I might be kind of bored there. I said, bored? 
He says, do you think of having been born? I said, no way. I can't wait to get there. I mean, we'll only have glorified bodies that won't hurt, won't need sleep, won't get disease. And the older you are, the more amens you want to say to that one. And you'll just learn things for all eternity and never forget them. When you see that angel coming, you'll say, hey, and you'll know the name. Even though there's thousands upon thousands and myriads of myriads, you won't forget that face. You'll see Jesus face to face. You have responsibilities in the kingdom. You'll have things to do. And you'll want to do them and you get to do them for your king. You'll meet all the angels You'll learn all their stories and learn all their names and learn all the Bible characters that are all mentioned in the Bible. All those people of faith, you get to see them all, get to talk to them all, get to learn all their struggles and talk to them about the details. Now, when the Bible says this and fill in all those things that you, you didn't quite understand, right? But oh yeah, no, 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 it was happened like this. And all those Christians of all the ages and all the missionaries and all just the faithful church people and all the countries of all the world will all be there and you'll get to know them all and talk to them all. You're talking about boring Hello, that sounds like heaven to me. (laughs) No one in heaven will be bored. And when they finally receive the glories of heaven, they're going to be more than content having had to wait as long as they had to wait to get them. This brings us to our final grand concept of faith. Those of faith look to Christ. Look at verse 40. This verse at... It's caused a little grief to some people and has been a little puzzling. Let me just read verses 39 and 40 together so you can get the whole sentence and then we'll look at verse 40. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now that last phrase is what people say, what? Is that a scribal gloss there? So apart from us, they would not be made perfect? I mean, listen, we can't perfect anybody, especially people who have already died. What, what, how, what do you mean? That just doesn't make sense. How is it that we're perfecting people? Well, it always causes problems when you kind of pluck phrases out of their context because usually you grab a meaning that is wrong. But if you just read it in its context, you deal with the first phrase first in verse 40, then it makes the second phrase understandable. Look at it says, because God had provided something better for us. First of all, you have to ask, who's us? Well, he's contrasting here those Old Testament believers who died in faith without receiving what was promised. And now he's talking about us, us New Testament believers who have something better than what they had. So the question is, what is it that they had that they didn't have that we have? What is the better thing that we have? You know, Tim kind of gave it away a couple weeks ago when he preached on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you look there where he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all these people who live by faith, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart and you could add there in your life of faith 
the answer to the mystery. What do we have that they didn't have? Jesus. You see, they hoped in faith that a Messiah would come, but for us, he has already come. They look forward to a once-for-all sacrifice, but we enjoy knowing that the once-for-all sacrifice came, died, and rose again. They only knew a little about Jesus and his character, but we know a great deal. They didn't know about his ministry and his teaching, but we have it contained in the scriptures. They look forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant, but never experienced it. But we, as New Testament believers under the new covenant, we experience the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. We know about and are members of the spiritual body of Christ, the church, which was formed at Pentecost, which is that new man, that mystery never before revealed that God would take both Gentile and Jew and unite them into one new man. They didn't have any knowledge of that. And we have a fuller revelation of God, just his truth and his plan for the future, which they didn't have. So all of these things and other things we have that are better than what they had. So once you understand that God gave New Testament believers so much more than Old Testament believers, then you understand what he means when he says, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That is apart from us and the times that we live and everything we enjoy as New Testament believers, they would not be perfect, made, made, made perfect. In other words, it's not believers who are making them perfect. It's apart from the times that we as believers, as the corporate body of Christ saved by the grace of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ have. If Christ had not come for us, they couldn't be made perfect either. He had to come. Hebrews 7.19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And see, that's all they had. They had the law of Moses. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, I mean, it's fine, but it's nothing compared to the law of Christ. The once for all sacrifice, Jesus is high priest and all these things he's mentioned in this book, man, we have the whole deal. They just had the shadow. So when he says, so that apart from us, he's talking about us and the better things God has prepared for those who live on this side of the cross. John Calvin wrote, quote, a small spark of light led them to heaven when we have the sun of righteousness shines over us. And what pretense can we excuse ourselves if we still cleave to the earth? This is the real meaning of the apostle, end quote. And Calvin just nails it. They had this little tiny spark. And we have the son of righteousness. And if the son of righteousness never came, they couldn't be made perfect. They couldn't. God had to fulfill his promise so that people could be made perfect. And this is why the author of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 12 too, and telling us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to consider him in 12.3. You want to live by faith? Look to Christ. He is our example. He is our teacher. He is our shepherd. He is our instructor. He is our great high priest. And so Calvary Bible Church, let us never forget that we can only gain approval, only get that stamp of approval if we live by faith. It doesn't matter what you do. If it's not by faith, it doesn't please God. Secondly, if you are to please God, get into the promises and get them in your head. Think about them and trust them in faith. 
Because there are so many great promises there. You can, you know, a lot of people get frustrated. The Bible is such a huge book. I mean, it's just so, look, look at this thing, man. That is fat. And they've like invented special thin paper. Otherwise it would be hugely fat. Well, you know why it's so fat? You know why the Bible is so large? Because God wants to give you many, many precious and magnificent promises to bless your life, to give you something to cling to in every storm and every trial, both examples and exhortations and teachings. It's all there. And third and finally, if we were going to find uh, live life of faith and please God, we must look to Christ. He is our ultimate example. So let us be done with worrying and fretting and anxiety and doubting. And let us be done with thinking that we need to trust in the government to save us or trust in, you know, the economy to save us or to think that our own efforts or our own will or groups of people or groups of Christian or or lobbying whatever is going to triumph in the day. No, it is faith that triumphs. It is faith that please God. It's only faith that please God. Yes, there needs to be a working, but it must be in faith. There must be a striving, but it must be in faith. There must be obeying in faith because it is only faith that finds approval with God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful just for what we're able to learn in this passage. What a great God you are. And I just thank you for the challenges that were brought before us in this chapter the encouragements, the exhortations, how amazing it is that you take sinners, sinners who are weak, sinners who just are really um, unable in and of themselves to even seek you and you seek them. You give them the grace, you grant them repentance, you draw them to yourself. You open their eyes to the truth and Father, you help them to just live in a way that pleases you because you supply them with all the grace and all the faith they need to do that. Father, may we remember that we can only be approved before you by faith. May we remember that we need to wrap our faith around your precious and magnificent promises. And may we remember that we need to have faith in Christ and look to him, trusting only in him to not only save us, but to help us live in this world for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.